0: I do a lot of work with people and money, and have really um, discovered that most people live in a very dysfunctional relationship with money. And um, most people, I mean, kind of like all people. And uh, even the ones that have piles of it, you would think that they would be able to kind of get the money thing handled by the time they were a billionaire, but you know, it's not true. Um, In fact, usually that exacerbates the, the systemic difficulties people have with money. So um, uh, I, I have sort of tackled uh, this whole arena of people's relationship with money. And my book, The Soul of Money, gets into that pretty, pretty deeply uh, uh, in a way that I recommend if you're kind of struggling with your relationship with money like most people are. Uh, that it might be a little bit of an elix- elixir for you to read that book. Um, it's called The Soul of Money, and I, uh, I recommend it, not because it's my book, but because I know that message, which is not mine, I'm the instrument of it, comes from God. I know that that message has nothing to do with me, uh, but actually uh, I've been used as an instrument to communicate something to a world that's gone astray in its relationship with money. Um, uh, if you are burdened in your relationship with money, if you're anxious and upset in your relationship with money, if you're suffering in your relationship with money, I want you to know that you're totally and completely normal. <laughs> if you're not suffering in your relationship with money, you're a complete mutant, uh, and you should be leading the next uh, seminar here. Um, most people are completely confused, upset, angry, hurt, wounded, uh, and suffering in their relationship with money. And that is normal, Uh, yet we think there's something wrong with us. We think that it's a private matter. We try and hide it from other people. We lament about it in our minds, sometimes talk about it to another person, uh, but are embarrassed if we have a dysfunctional relationship with money. But I want you to know that I have discovered in my uh, delving into this topic that that suffering in your relationship with money and that suffering in my relationship with money is a cultural suffering. It's culture. It's in the culture of being human right now, particularly in the United States, particularly, I would say, in New York City. uh, But it's all over the world. And it's not your personal rainstorm. It's raining on everybody else too. So this cultural suffering around money comes from a whole network of lies we tell about money in our culture. And so we take that cultural suffering and we personalize it, thinking that it's our fault. But I want to disabuse you, or let's see, uh, relieve you liberate you a little bit from that suffering by letting you know that the suffering is embedded in the culture in which we live, and then we personalize it. But we don't need to uh, buy into that suffering. Now, that suffering in my analysis comes from, or my analysis, that sounds so heady. Actually, I don't do anything like heady. Um, uh, My understanding, my um, uh, kind of uh, engagement with uh, the world of money and people's relationship with money, that suffering comes from the lies we tell about money. First of all, one of the lies we tell as a culture about money is we've forgotten that we invented the stuff. (laughs) So we think, you know, it was here before human beings practically. No, we invented money about 4,500 years ago. Uh, Money is actually fairly a recent phenomenon in uh, human history. And it was invented. It was created by us. We've forgotten that we invented this stuff. Money does not grow on trees. Pennies do not rain from heaven. Uh, It is not part of the natural world. We created it. uh, And we made it up. We made it up for the purpose of sharing our goods and resources with each other in an equitable fashion. We created money to provide for people what they needed. So um, if Jackie were the corn farmer and I were the pig farmer, or let's say Jackie were the corn farmer and I were the cobbler and I wanted to um, uh, have uh, uh, some corn, then, um, or let's say she's the pig farmer. Sorry, you're the pig farmer, I'm the I'm the cobbler. She's the pig farmer. You know about that pig farming thing that she's always doing on the side. Um <coughs> and I wanted uh, to have a pig, I would hope, this is before money, that uh, she would need her shoes fixed or her children would need new shoes made for them because I'm a cobbler and that's what I could provide. And we lived then before money in a barter economy. Uh, but if I went to her and I said, I would like to fix your shoes or make some shoes for you f- to have a pig... And she would say, well, well, I don't need any shoes. Sorry, my kids are fine. We don't need any shoes. My shoes are fine. We don't need any. Then I would think, well, how am I going to get a pig? So I would have to go over here to this lovely person, Reverend Laney Love Dalby, uh, because she's the corn farmer. And I would ask her if she needed her shoes fixed. And if she did, oh, hallelujah, because I would fix her shoes. She would give me some corn. Then I would give corn to Jackie, and Jackie would give me a pig. But you can see how complicated that got. It was very complicated. So really, that's simply that's really how money was invented. We invented money to make that whole thing simpler so that we could have what we need, so that we could provide what people need for each other, so that we could have equitable access to the resources to live healthy and productive lives. That was the purpose of money, for sharing our goods and resources. Now, if that was the original purpose of money, you can see it went a little bit off that purpose line a few years ago. And now money is used to marginalize, to rather than provide. it. Uh, often it's used to withdraw or withhold. Uh, money marginalizes m- major portions uh, of our human family. Um, and uh, we've lost our way with money. You could say uh, as soon as banking was invented and interest was invented and complicated financial instruments now of which there are millions of instruments so complicated we can't even understand them ourselves, uh, money has lost its way. And so one of the lies we tell about money is that we've forgotten we invented it. We have given it more power than human life. And there's not a person in this church or outside of this church who, knows, uh, who doesn't know that that's a lie. Money is not more important than human life. But in the culture in which we live, money has become more important than human life. Now, who gives money its power? We do. We do. Money has no power except the power we assign to it. If I held up a Zambian kwacha, which is the currency in the country of Zambia, you would see an orange piece of paper uh, nine and a half by eleven—that's how large the money is in Zambia. You would see a piece of paper that has a beautiful design with the Zambezi River and probably a rhinoceros or a picture of Kenneth Kaunda, the freedom fighter, there. Uh, And you would want to frame it. It would be so pretty. And I would uh, actually tell you, this is a Zambian quash, This is the currency they use in Zambia. Would you like to take a look at it? I would pass it to Reverend Laney, and she would pass it to Reverend Michael, and it would go around the church, and you would pass it from person to person, and you would examine it. And then um, you would see how lovely it was and how well-designed that money is. And it's orange in Zambia, too, kind of an interesting color for money. And um, about when it was halfway through the church, when it got over there, maybe to Bob or Fred, um, uh, I would say that it was worth a hundred thousand dollars. That Zambian Quacha. and right after that, nobody would hear every anything that I said next. Your heads would turn. You would want to know where it was going next, and you would have assigned that orange piece of paper enormous power. You would have your total consciousness. It would be really hard to pass it along, and suddenly this piece of paper would have all this meaning that it didn't have until you and I assigned it its meaning. Now, I use that example to make us aware that we assign money its meaning. We assign it its power. We assign it its psychological power over us. We assign it its spiritual power over us. We assign it its ontological power over us. We have the power to assign it power, and we have the power to withdraw that power from it. And um, when we assign more power to money than human life, there's not a person alive today that knows that that is not a lie. And so our society now is living a lie with money, giving it more power, more importance, more meaning than human life. We've also given money more power, more meaning, more importance than the natural world, which we know is a lie. Money is not more important than human life, does not have more meaning than human life. Money is not more important than the natural world. We, you can tell that we have given more meaning, more importance, more power than the natural world because we will destroy the very environment on which our life depends for money. Just like we will kill another human being for money. Now, not people in this room, but the way we live does do that kind of damage. You know, we know that people kill for money, but we also know that people are making a dying rather than a living. People are doing something they hate, that doesn't express who they are for money. And people are making a killing instead of a living. Making a killing is doing something that you know is destroying other people, destroying the environment, marginalizing huge swaths of the human population, polluting water and air for money. And that's legitimate, uh, becoming less legitimate, thank God, but still legitimate in our society. And third, we've given money more power, more meaning than spirit or God. We will forego spirit or God for money, even the best of us. And our society promotes that behavior, promotes, validates, affirms that behavior. And the biggest lie we tell about money, so those are some lies we tell about money in our culture that have tremendous suffering as a result. Uh, A Buddha... Uh, said 2,000 or so years ago, the source of all suffering is a lie. So I'm asserting that the suffering we have around money is rooted in the lies we tell about money. Not that you're bad and wrong, but that we're living in swimming in lies that we tell about money. And that is the source of our suffering around money, not something that you did or did not do. The big lie we tell about money is what I call the lie of scarcity. And the lie of scarcity kind of permeates everything. And when I say the lie of scarcity, I'm talking now about an unconscious, unexamined network of assumptions that come before thinking. It's almost like an unconscious, unexamined lens through which we're looking at life. And that lens says, there's not enough. And it's not something we're perceiving. It's a place we think from. Very difficult to get at that. It's the place we think from. It's like looking, trying to look at your own eyeballs. You almost can't do it. So an unconscious, unexamined assumption that there's not enough governs the way you think in a way that no matter what you look at, there's not enough of it. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. There's not enough love. There's not enough vacations. There's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough days in the week. There's not enough sleep. There's not enough evenings. There's not enough mornings. And we live in a kind of mania where we wake up in the morning and the first thought we have is, I didn't get enough sleep, no matter when we went to bed. And the second thought we have is I don't have enough time. And the third thought we have is I don't have enough to wear. And the fourth thought we have is I didn't get enough done yesterday. I've got to da-da-da-da. And the fifth and sixth and seventh all our thoughts are embedded often and this may not be true for you but it's true for a lot of people that there's not enough. Every meeting, every conference call, every luncheon meeting, every conversation is about I don't have enough of this. There's not enough of that. We don't have enough of this. There's not enough of that. Every conversation is often embedded in what I call the mindset of scarcity. And these conversations and these meetings and these moments go all the way through the day where you don't have enough time to have lunch. Of course, you're just going to have to skip lunch today, or you eat it on the run. You don't have enough of this, you don't have enough of that. You can't get to all your emails, you don't have enough of this, enough of that. All the way till the last thing of the day when you finally lay down in bed and put your head on the pillow. And for many people, the last thought of the day is, I didn't get enough done. So that we kind of bookend our life with, I didn't get enough sleep, I didn't get enough done, and then a lot of there's not enough's in between. And this there's not enough mentality, it's not enough, there's not enough, it's not enough, there's not enough, we don't have enough, it's not enough, there's not enough, is so pervasive that it starts to get into your own psyche and you start thinking, I am not enough. I am not enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not young enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not educated enough. I'm not this enough. I'm not that enough. I'm not able enough. I am not enough. And so scarcity thinking <coughs> begins to be who you think you actually are. And this myth- mythology of there's not enough. And I'm calling it a mythology because I'm talking about an unconscious, unexamined mindset. I'm not talking about situations in the world, and I know they're right here in this community, right here in New York, but they're also all over the world where people actually do not have enough water, where people actually do not have enough to eat, where people actually do not have access to a healthy and productive life. I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about the automatic, pilot, unconscious, unexamined way of looking at life that shoots us in the foot every day. The unconscious, unexamined lens that has us not see what's actually there. So I call this lie of scarcity an all-encompassing, unhealthy mindset that drives the consumer society in which we live and continues to almost rain on us in a tyranny through advertising and marketing that convinces us that we don't have enough, that we are not enough, and that we must acquire or accumulate more. So in this great mindset of scarcity that's an automatic pilot response to life, uh, there's three sort of toxic myths embedded in that. The first one being there's not enough. There's not enough. There's not enough of anything. And it's an unconscious, unexamined lens. The second toxic myth in that uh, kind of mindset of scarcity is more is better, more of anything, more of everything. More, 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 more is better. And as I think everybody can know in your heart of hearts and see, The consumer culture, the uh, incredible driven culture of more is better, has us in terrible, terrible trouble with our mother, the earth. Uh, It has us buying things we don't need. It has us accumulating things we're never going to use. It has us uh, promoting um, uh, consumption and acquisition and taking and taking and uh, consuming and throwing things away and generating waste. It has us living in ways that none of us uh, uh, can really escape from. Even a five-year-old, by the time he or she goes to kindergarten, um, knows the name of twenty brands, but can't name the name can't name uh, uh, the twenty types of trees. But they know twenty brands. Uh, so even uh, the smallest of us are pummeled with messages telling us we have to have more of something that you and I really don't need. So this is a cultural thing that we all live in that's horrendous, and I am going to tell you what I think uh, you can do to get out of it, so, uh, you know, we will get there eventually. (laughs) Um, And then the third toxic myth is, that's just the way that it is. And I'm calling that a toxic myth because mm, that's just the way that it is, is resignation. It is the justification for uh, buying into that whole thing. It is where we give up. It is where we see we can't possibly make a difference. It is where we get caught in uh, being small and petty and just giving in to the huge reality of, shoot, there's nothing I can do about it. We live in this oppressive, horrendous consumer culture, and I'm just at the effect of it, and there's nothing I can do. So, that is the kind of my uh, overview of why we suffer in our relationship with money because we're caught in these traps. Uh, we think there's not enough to go around, which isn't true. I'm going to tell you more about that in a minute. Uh, we're told over and over again more is better, more of anything, everything's better. Uh, and uh, whether or not you even believe that, it is the culture shapes behavior that has you acquiring things that you don't need every single day. One of the ways I uh, I like to uh, point to the reality of that is one of the fastest growing industries in our country is something called storage. And if you think about what storage is, it's embarrassing that we would need it. Uh, and uh, storage is huge industry now growing faster than anybody can believe Uh, and um, when you think about storage if you just think about storage, housing our stuff, building housing for our stuff that we can't fit in the houses or homes that we're in now so it's kind of an odd thing when you think about that. When we have millions of homeless people in the United States we are not building houses for them, we're building houses for the stuff that we can't fit in the houses in which we live. That's a little symbol of a culture that's lost its way. Um, I I mentioned that I work with the Pachamama Alliance and I work with indigenous people uh, in the Amazon, as does Sarah Vetter. And I would love to um, share some of that work with you as well. But one of the things that's so amazing about indigenous people is that they live in constant reciprocity. You help me build my house. I help you with your daughter's marriage. Um, You help me, uh, you hunt for me when I'm sick. I'll I'll fish for you when you're out of the territory. Everybody owes everybody all the time, and there's no money exchanged. If you bring money into that system, it breaks the relationship, it breaks the community. You help me build uh, my house, and I pay you, then... I have to pay someone to help me with my daughter's wedding. So um, indigenous people are just shocked at the way that money separates us, in the way that money has us, breaks our relatedness, in the way that money has us start separating from each other and actually accuse each other of things and start hating each other and start stealing from each other. Money is not the root of all evil, but we use it in a way – We believe in it, unfortunately, in a way that creates behaviors that are inconsistent with our humanity. But in the uh, indigenous territories where we work in in the Ecuadorian Amazon, I found it really telling um, that uh, they could not get, they, they could not, you know, they don't have a word for it, of course, in their language, but they could not understand this concept of storage. I was trying to explain it to them <laughs> um, because we had a guy with us who was running storage facilities, and he was telling them they wanted to know what he did and whether he, how many cattle he had, and you know that's the kind of questions they ask there. And um, he said, "No, no, I'm I'm a business person. I have a company, and we build storage facilities." And they were storage facilities. What is storage? This is these are people who don't uh, don't under even understand ownership. They don't own things. So it was really something. And then the other thing that I find very beautiful about indigenous people is when someone takes more than they need in their culture, a culture of reciprocity, a culture where everything is shared, they consider them mentally ill. And they send them to the shaman for treatment. I'm not kidding. (laughs) I thought that was really pretty cool. So um, this mindset of scarcity is something that we all... Uh, we all, we, it was here before we were born. It's not our fault. It'll be, still be here when we die. Uh, but we don't need to play that game. We don't need to buy into it. So I'm going to tell you what I call the radical surprising truth. But before we do, I'm going to ask you to talk to each other a little bit. Um, and uh, I would like you to find yourself a partner to talk to and then I'll give you instructions about what to do with that partner. But if you would take a moment and find a partner and if you would raise your hand and um, uh, you could either stand up and walk towards a person with their hand raised or if there's someone with their hand raised right next to you, take their hand and once you have a partner put your hand down and if you don't have a partner keep your hand raised and then we'll match you up with someone. Okay, so raise your hand and get a partner. And once you have a partner, you can put your hand down. And if you don't have a partner, raise your hand and then walk towards the person with their hand raised. That's how we're going to do this. (coughs) Okay, good. Is there anybody who does not have a partner? Okay, now raise your hand if you can hear the sound of my voice. Raise your hand if you can hear the sound of my voice. Okay, I used to teach first grade. That's how you get people to be quiet. Um, Okay, so um, with this lovely partner, silently determine by looking who has longer hair. Just look. You figure that out? That was a tough question. Okay, the person with the longer hair is gonna go first and here's my assignment for you long-haired person, um, I'd like you to share uh, where you're caught in the lie of scarcity, the unconscious, unexamined mindset of scarcity that I've been describing, where you're trapped or caught in the mindset of scarcity, where you're kind of bamboozled by it. Um, and uh, and it, this really works well if you're authentic and transparent and say the really bad stuff. And if you do that, then your shorter-haired partner will have permission to say something even worse to you. (laughs) So um, shorter-haired person, create a lot of safe space for them to really let it go here, stuff to where they're caught and trapped in the mindset of scarcity. You know, maybe they think there's not enough, you know, maybe they're a woman and they think there's not enough good, available men over 40. You know, maybe that's what they think there's not enough. Of course, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's not a lie. So uh, don't don't say that one. <laughs> but um, but look and see where you're caught and trapped in the mindset of scarcity where there's just there's just not enough, more is better and that's just the way it is. And um, the shorter her- Like a little confession, we're in church, you know, and I, w- I was raised as a Catholic, we used to do confession. Um, and they can just say where they're caught in the mindset of scarcity, and then that, I want to clear that away a little bit because pretty soon I'm going to tell you the radical, surprising truth, which I want to make sure you have room for. Um, and so first, uh, uh, the long-haired person will go first. Uh, the shorter-haired person, just listen and receive uh, and make it safe for them to say anything. And then I'll give you about a little bit, like a minute, nothing too long. And then, but it'll be enough time. And then the uh, shorter haired person, I'll give you a, 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 I'll I'll let you know when to stop, long haired person, and give you 10 second warning before you're ending, and then we'll switch. But don't switch till I tell you, okay? Got the instructions? Okay, ready? Long haired person, let it rip. Take about 10 more seconds. Long haired person, 10 more seconds. Three, two, one. Okay. Thank you, long haired person. Um, Short haired people, it really helps when you tell someone you got it, if you did. So look right at your partner and say, I got it. (laughs) Okay. All right, now, short-haired person, your turn. Share with the long-haired person where you're caught, trapped, kind of bamboozled, hooked by the mindset of scarcity, with time, with money, with anything where this kind of mindset, unconscious, unexamined, automatic pilot mindset of scarcity has kind of got you by the throat. And a short-haired person, uh, a long-haired person, your job is to listen with compassion and make it safe for them to share anything. Okay, take a minute, ready, short-haired person, your turn. Hey, take 10 more seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay. And if you were the listener... Please thank your partner and tell them that you got it if you did. Okay. So if you would stay right where you are with this partner, because I'm going to tell you the radical surprising truth, and then I'm going to give you a chance to talk to your partner about that. So everybody can stay right where you are. Okay. Pardon? Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> Just stay where you are. Don't go back to your original place because I'm gonna tell you the radical, surprising truth, and then you're gonna give you a chance. I give you a chance to talk to this partner about that. Um, but does anybody want to share anything about what you said or what your partner said, with their permission, uh, to kind of anchor this conversation about scarcity? <gasps> Sarah Vetter. Oh my goodness. Okay. Did someone else raise their hand, too? Oh, you raise your hand. We'll take three. Okay. <laughs> no, no. go ahead. Okay. Um, well, the spectacular Jackie here shared, and I shared, and I, I realized our theme, our stories were very different, but it was really that we, we weren't enough. I, I'm not enough. Jackie doesn't think she's enough in what she's doing. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Got to be kidding me! What am I going to say? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think that for me, I feel like I've done this exercise enough that it—you um, are so enough. I mean, every single thing you do is enough. And um, uh, so I just—I just, I just want to share that no matter, even though our stories were so different, that it kind of boiled down to uh, whatever the story is, is that we think we're not enough. It's a mindset it's rather a than mindset. Th- That's just yeah. It's just all you know back. In, inside to the individual, we're not enough. Yeah, it's so a beautiful example because everybody here knows this woman's doing enough. <laughs> but the mindset is she it doesn't even, you know, you can't escape it. <clears throat> you want to go next? Can you stand up so we yeah, can see sure. you? Hi, I'm, I'm Graham. Um, Hi. So Lila and I talked about um, both being in places <coughs> where we're finding great professional success um, and maybe feeling like we have enough money we're, we're sorting out our finances. We're feeling better about that. But that's manifesting in feeling like we don't have enough time. Mm. Like we have maybe sold our time and maybe ourselves <coughs> at a deficit. So no matter, although we have um, enough in one area, that's manifested in not doing enough in other areas. Awesome. Just perfect. Thank you. And you have a mic back there? Can you stand up so we can see you? Oh. So, uh, my answer was the same. It was time, but it was a little different. It was, I spend too much work at time, and so therefore I don't leave enough time for Danita. And I also say yes too many times, and there's not enough for Danita. Great. Wonderful. Beautiful. Okay. So, um, let me just point out something that's may be so obvious it doesn't need to be said, but this mindset actually creates a deficit mentality with us about ourselves. That's really the huge cost of it. And we keep accumulating more stuff to fill up this deficit experience we have with ourselves. That's what the consumer nightmare is really all about. And when you think about it, it is not It's a complete mirror that our country is in a huge debt. Now, we're the richest country in the history of the world. At the same time, we have the biggest debt of any country of any time in history. It's that deficit is an accurate reflection of a culture that only values outer riches, and gives no power to inner riches. So, the deficit, every nation is in debt now in the world practically, every community is in debt, every state is in debt, every school system is in debt, every police department's in debt. We are living, swimming in debt and deficit. And that did not used to be the case. Um, we're swimming in debt and deficit and did not used to be the case and you can see that it's a function of a consumer culture that's lost its way. So I I also want to say one other thing about that and then I'm gonna go to the radical surprising truth. We have a deficit in our relationship with the mother, with the earth. So we are using more resources now than she can regenerate. In 1987 we went over the one earth line. That's when we started using more resources on the earth than she can regenerate. So we started uh, living off a credit card, uh, an ecological credit card that we can never pay back. Uh, Now we're getting close to 50%. We're at 41, 42% more resources than the earth can regenerate. Uh, This is reflected in the financial crisis. So the ecological crisis is the source of the economic crisis. Now, you don't hear people saying this on Wall Street, although I did say it on Wall Street. I did talk on Wall Street and said this. But eco, eco, ecology, economy. The economy is actually based on the ecology. The ecology is now in debt. Until we start living within our ecological means, the eco economic crisis will not be over. The eco- economic crisis is an accurate reflection of an ecological crisis. Um, so I wanted to make that connection for you. So we are living in a deficit relationship with ourself, a deficit relationship with our world, and a deficit relationship with the natural world on which our life depends. That is the consequence of the mindset of scarcity, it is nasty, nasty business. Okay, so now you probably want to hear the radical, surprising truth before I'm done. Nope. Ready for that? Yeah. <laughs> Wall to- well, Wall Street was very responsive, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was it was a TED talk. You can go online and look up TEDx Wall Street and put my name in, and you'll see that they they were pretty responsive. Uh, it's, it's hard to face that, though, because it's, it's um, pretty all-encompassing. But that's the way we need to play the game now in the 21st century. It's an all-in game. Um, but let me get to the radical surprising truth, because you have to get there before the end of this talk here. Um, so I'm going to tell you how I discovered this. Um, I had a great, great teacher when, um, when I was a young woman, and his name was Buckminster Fuller. How many of you know that name or have ever heard of it? Um, and I'll, for those of you who didn't raise your hand, Buckminster Fuller was a, a really great thinker. He was a humanist. He was an engineer and architect. He lived in the 20th century. Uh, he died in his 80s, in the 80s. Um, and his um, uh, his contribution really, uh, we all feel it whether you knew about him or not. Uh, Bucky lived his life to make a difference. His, his life was an experiment. Could one little individual, make a difference that would impact all humanity. He lived his life with that commitment. And I heard him speak when he was in his 80s, and he talked about the intellectual integrity of the universe. And he always did a very sort of heady talk. Uh, he was a scientist, so his words were kind of over my head. and um, But I I got him. I got who he was. He was a uh, a man that just being in his presence was such a... Uh, such a gift that I just wanted to hear him speak, even though I kind of didn't understand what he was talking about. Do you know what I mean? H- who he was spoke so loudly, I didn't need to understand the words he was saying. Um, and in one talk he did in San Francisco, he had a table in front of him with, um, with these uh, big, like, tinker toy things. Uh, that showed the structure uh, of the universe. And one was a tetrahedron, another was an icosahedron. At least I can say those words, but I don't really understand what they are. Um, And at one point, he stepped in front of this table with the icosahedron and the tetrahedron behind him, and then he looked out at the audience the way I'm looking at you, and he said, now I'm going to say the most important thing I've ever said or ever will say. And I was really going to understand this. I really got ready for this. And he said this amazing thing. By the way, this was in 1978. It was really a long time ago before some people in this room were born. I think it might have been 1976. Anyway, it was a long time ago. And he put his arm out and he said, Humanity has recently passed a critical threshold. And, And he went like this. We've passed it. And it's recent. Now, when Buckminster Fuller said recent, he met in the last 50 or 100 years. Because this is a man who thought in huge swaths of time. He uh, understood the great sweep of history. So when he said recently, he was talking 50 or 100 years. So he said, humanity has just passed a critical threshold. And that threshold is this. We are now doing so much more with so much less and that is the direction of our science, of our innovation, of our creativity, of our human genius. We are doing so much more with so much less that it is absolutely clear now that we have enough for everyone, everywhere to live a healthy and productive life. We have enough for everyone, everywhere, to live a healthy and productive life. And that will now continue. Now this is in 1976 he said this. He said, that means we move from a paradigm of a you-or-me world where Gwen here in the second pew makes it at my expense because there's not enough for both of us or I make it at Gwen's expense, because there's not enough for both of us, Two, that's a you-or-me paradigm, to a you-and-me paradigm on the other side of this threshold, where Gwen and I can both make it at nobody's expense, because there's enough for everyone, everywhere to lead a healthy and productive life. So going from a you-or-me paradigm, a paradigm of scarcity, to a you-and-me paradigm, which he called the context of sufficiency. The context of sufficiency. When when Buck, Mr. Fuller said this, I, I can't say I understood it, but I got it. I had a Kundalini experience come up my spine. I started to cry. My hands started to perspire. Everything started to perspire. All juices started flowing. I was like, totally transformed and from that moment on I started to see the sufficiency the enoughness of life I didn't see from deficit I didn't see from the scarcity mindset it cleared away and what I saw and what the context of my life was from that moment on standing here today looking at you I saw I see I am I speak sufficiency now let me define sufficiency more accurately and more precisely sufficiency is being met by the universe sufficiency is the exquisite distinction of enough it's not abundance that's different it's sufficient you arrive At realizing you have exactly what you need, that it's perfect, that it's a match, that the universe meets you exquisitely over and over and over again, including with a disaster when you need a disaster, including with a loss when that's exactly what you need, including with a breakthrough when it's what you need, or a breakdown if it's what you need. So, sufficiency is a very, very, very powerful truth, and I call it the radical, surprising truth, hidden by the mindset of scarcity and more. And Bucky said something after that that was very important to me. He said, It will take at least 50 years for humanity to come to terms with a you and me paradigm. Because it's a paradigm. It's a mindset. And all the institutions of humankind are rooted in the mindset of scarcity. Education is rooted in the mindset of scarcity, he said. That's its foundation. It's it's rooted in a you or me understanding of the world the economy is clearly rooted in a you or me understanding of the world. He said governance is rooted in a you or me understanding of the world. And he went on to name every institution, and he did not leave out religion, he said, is rooted in a you or me understanding of the world. So it will take 50 years for us to reconstitute, rethink, redesign, resource our institutions, the institutions we're living in, they will need to disintegrate first for us to live in the context of the radical surprising truth of sufficiency. So that was in 1976, this is 2014, and you can feel the institutions of humankind disintegrating, dissolving, falling apart, finding a new ground. Now let me tell you about abundance so that I don't leave abundance out because it's a beautiful thing, but it's distinct from sufficiency. Abundance in a mindset of scarcity is more than you need, and it is the source of waste. It is what's in our landfills. It is actually excess in a mindset of scarcity. But in the context of sufficiency, abundance is the natural overflowing from enough. The natural overflowing from enough. It is not even related to more. So in the context of sufficiency now, the portal to abundance is enough, not more. So let me give you the principle of sufficiency. This is the one thing, if you remember one thing, this is the thing to remember. And I'm going to say a principle, and um, you may want to write it down, but don't write it down first. First listen so that you can kind of get it, okay? And then he could write it down. Ready? If you let go of trying to get more of what you don't really need, which is what we're scrambling to get more of, it frees up oceans of energy to turn and pay attention to what you already have when you pay attention to what you already have, when you nourish it, when you realize you can make a difference with it, it expands. Okay? i say it again. When you let go of trying to get more of what you don't really need, it frees up oceans of energy that are all caught up in that chase to make a difference with what you have. When you make a difference with what you have, it expands. I know that's a long thing to write down, so here's a short version. What you appreciate, appreciates. What you appreciate, appreciates. That's the context of sufficiency. So let me just... um, you one more story and then I'm going to have you do a little something with that partner and then we'll close, okay? My newest and most um, beloved teacher who's still living and still in his 80s is Brother David Stendhal rast and he, um, I asked him once, he's the living embodiment of gratefulness. You may have known known about him. He's a Benedictine monk. He lives in solitude most of the time. He's a beautiful, beautiful guy, and he's living and with gratefulness. Gratefulness is awesome, as you know, but one time I asked Brother David, what's the difference between gratitude and gratefulness, and he said the most beautiful thing, and this is a way of looking at sufficiency and abundance. He said, gratitude has two great branches, Lynn. One is gratefulness, the other is thanksgiving. Gratefulness is when the bowl of life is so full that it's almost overflowing, but not quite. That's when the bowl of life is so full that it's bowed at the top, but not yet dribbling over the edges. When you're in that space, you're in the great fullness of life. You're one with God. You're one with the universe. There is no other. And that's so fulfilling that the bowl of life starts to overflow. And that puts you in the other branch of gratitude, Thanksgiving. And in that branch of gratitude, the bowl of life is constantly overflowing. And all you want to do is give and serve and share and contribute. And you're so grateful that there's an other so that you can give and share and serve and contribute with this incredible bounty, your abundance. And it's so fulfilling, it puts you back over here in the great fullness of life. When the bowl of life is so full that it's almost overflowing, but not quite. And bowed at the top, but not yet dribbling over the edges. And that's when you're one with God and the universe and there is no other. It's all one. And that's so fulfilling, that's sufficiency, so fulfilling that it overflows. And that puts you over here in the Thanksgiving. And all you want to do is give and serve and contribute and share. And you're so grateful that there's an others so you can do that, etc. This is sufficiency. This is abundance. This is gratefulness or gratefulness. This is Thanksgiving. And you can live in the two branches of gratitude when you recognize the radical surprising truth. Of sufficiency. Got it? Okay, so turn to your long-haired or short-haired partner, and I'm going to ask you to share with them, um, let's start with a short-haired partner because they have just enough hair, <laughs> <laughs> or no hair at all, which is just enough, um, and I'd like you to share with your longer-haired partner The bounty, the blessing, the great fullness of your life. And I'm not kidding. No modesty allowed here. Modesty is the flip side of arrogance. When you really tell the truth about how miraculous, how beautiful, how full your life is, it's humbling. It's humbling. So I want you to name names, talk about your apartment, your pet, your granddaughter, your mother, your minister, your church. Um, It's okay to talk about your car, your stuff. (laughs) Uh, I want you to share the great fullness of your life, the bounty, the blessing, the miracle of your life with that person with the hair that's just a tad longer. And um, if you're the listener, the long-haired person, just be flooded with the beauty, the brilliance, the bounty of this person's life, even the breakdowns that they have, which have taught them the lessons that they need to learn. Okay? And you listen. And then I'll give you a 15, 10 second warning when it's time for the short-haired person to stop. And then we'll switch roles. Short-haired person, don't hold back. Tell them the real truth. Ready? Go. Sorry to interrupt you two, but I need the Hasrat and Anay- I... Uh, "Quote." Do you have that in your computer? Yeah. Is your computer here? Yeah. You get that out, Sorry. Yeah. and she'll be right back. that I asked for grace, and God gave me. Hazrat Ani Khan is in that quote file. The PDF file you can't send. Oh. That's okay. That's okay. I'll use something else. It's It's in my book. You have my book here? No, 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 no. Never mind. mind. It's okay. No, 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 no. It's 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 okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Okay. Did you love it? Yeah, it was Totally fun. <laughs> okay, ten more seconds for short haired person. Ten more seconds. Say one more wonderful thing. Five, four, three, two, one. Complete your communication and long-haired partner, congratulate your partner on their amazing life. <laughs> and I recommend a hug if, if you feel comfortable. I'm from California, you know, that's what we do there. <laughs> tissues tissues if you move your partner or yourself to tears you get extra credit okay long-haired partner it's your turn to share your amazing miraculous bountiful blessed life and share the ups and the downs, and it's okay to share anything. It's share, okay to share about your stuff. It's okay to do that, because we all have it, and we love it. Um, and a short-haired person, just listen to the bounty and blessing of this person's life, the great fullness, the great fullness of the life you've created. Ready? And it's okay to cry. It's really kind of good. Okay, go. Go. Okay, 10 more seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Complete your communication. And the listener, acknowledge and celebrate your partner and tell them if you think so, congratulate them on their miraculous life. And hugs are definitely encouraged. Okay, stay where you are just for a minute longer. We're almost done. Raise your hand if you can hear the sound of my voice. Thank you very much. I'm going to read you a quote that's in the Soul of Money book, but it's not from me. It's from Hazrat Inayat Khan, and it kind of says the whole thing uh, in like one minute. Um, And then I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. But Listen to this beautiful quote. He's a Sufi teacher. I ask for strength. And God gave me difficulties, which made me strong. I asked for wisdom, and God gave me problems I learned to solve. I asked for prosperity, and God gave me a brain and brawn to go to work. I asked for courage, and God gave me dangers to overcome. I asked for love, and God gave me people to help. I asked for favors but God gave me opportunities. I received nothing I wanted. I received everything I needed. I say that's the story of our lives. And when we recognize that we get exactly what we need, that we live in a context of sufficiency and when we dwell in that it overflows into the kind of abundance that is there only for the purpose of generosity, that the gift of being blessed is to be able to bless, to share, to generate generosity in the world, and to be happy. And so, um, because I love this song, and I I heard that Jackie loves this song, we're gonna end with a song and a dance called Happy by Farrell Williams. And because it's my theory that happiness is the greatest form of generosity. Everybody wants to be around people who are happy. And if you can discover your own sufficiency, your own enoughness, your own contentment will flow. And you can be the source of generosity, which I say is people who are happy.